They called it Mugger, said an article in the Harvard Gazette from 2001, an appropriate name for a marauding crocodile who's now just a giant skull on display in the Harvard Museum of Natural History. So today I'm at the Harvard Museum of Natural History. This is one of my favorite museums in the Boston area. Um, Having never visited Harvard in my life, I can only rely on the picture that accompanies the article, showing off an intimidating specimen that measured 5 feet and 6 inches from the nose to the back of the skull. I'm 5 foot 8, so if I lie down on the floor right now and Mugger would be resurrected beside me, the crocodile's head alone would just be about as tall as I was. In the picture, the Harvard curators jammed a little green stick inside its mouth to keep that massive jaw open. The teeth, now bleached bone white by age and preservation, were a dinosaurian collection of viciously uneven terrors. In a morbid fit, I imagine that great jaw taking a bite out of my arm or my leg, or even looming right in front of me, the last thing I'd likely ever see. The skull is over 190 years old, and back when it was alive, Mugger was a giant saltwater crocodile that lived near a plantation in Halahala, surrounded by the wetlands of Laguna de Bay, inside the province that we now call Rizal. Welcome to the Colonial Department, a podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we step into the wetlands to track down an elusive giant crocodile from the 1830s and also take a wide view of the arrival of foreign merchant houses into the Philippines during that period. This is Season 3, Episode 3, Mugger the Giant Crocodile. The plantation belonged to Paul Proust de la Gironière who proved worthy of his mouthful of a name with an equally lengthy resume, all of which you can read in his memoirs, which he entitled 20 Years in the Philippines. Over the course of the book's 300-plus pages, Gironier operates on eyeballs, fights insurgents, hunts wild game, robs eater graves, and baptizes children? So yeah, even historian Trinidad Pardo de Tavera cautioned people to take Gironier's tall tales with a grain of salt. Still, the Frenchman proved himself a capable entrepreneur and made his mark in history by setting up what Benito Legarda surmises was probably the first modern plantation in the country. It was set up in a peninsula that pierced the northeast side of Laguna de Bay. Fellow Frenchman Dumont d'Urville wrote, A few years previously, this spot consisted of a wild forest and an unwholesome swamp, with here and there the cabins occupied by robbers and pirates. At the present time, it is covered with fertile plantations, a profitable manufactory, a tranquil and industrious village. Covering about 2,400 hectares, it had every geographical feature imaginable. High peaks, including Mount Zembrano, outcroppings of granite and tuff, dense forests, and of course, crocodile-infested rivers. The crops in the plantation were equally wide-ranging. More than 2,700 locals busted their backs tending Gironier's fields of coffee, sugarcane, abaca, and rice. In addition, they had about 3,000 bulls, cows, and calves, 600 carabaos, 600 horses, 100 sheep, and 150 goats. But it was the coffee crop that stood out. 
1837, the plantation won a prize of 1,000 pesos for being the first estate to have more than 60,000 trees on its second harvest. The concentration of coffee in the Halahala estate was part of a great economic change that was sweeping through the Spanish colony of the Philippines. In 1815, the last ship of the galleon trade set sail. From then on, the previous stranglehold of the Manila-Acapulco monopoly was blown into smithereens. Before 1815, Manila was what we called an entrepot, a way station for goods from all across Asia, especially the great empire of China. Traders would bring in silk or porcelain or slaves, then Spanish merchants would add rare delicacies like bird's nest, wax, tortoise shell, or sea cucumber. Galleons would then sail east to the New World and return loaded with silver or sometimes friars. It worked like that for two and a half centuries, but in his book After the Galleons, Benito Legarda trots out statistical evidence that after the collapse of the trade with Mexico, Philippine native products began dominating our archipelago's pie chart of exports. No longer were we just re-exporting goods from other lands, we were selling stuff produced right here in the Philippines. Writes Legarda, by 1825, it is safe to say that the bulk of Philippine exports consisted of native goods. And what were these native goods? Well, they were sugar, abaca, coffee, indigo, tobacco, dyewoods, and rice. Hand in hand with the tectonic economic shift to these cash crops was the entry of foreign merchant houses into the islands. Again, pre-1815, the only business that mattered in the Philippines was run by a clubby little mafia that jealously controlled the galleon trade. Then, Mexico declared a war of independence and the end of the Napoleonic Wars forcibly opened up all the Spanish colonial ports to foreign trade. This double whammy of events left the Manila merchants with shaky capital and what a Spanish poet described as a shaken entrepreneurial spirit. Into Manila poured the British and the American merchant houses. In just 10 years, there was a great explosion of foreign merchant financier startups. Unlike local traders, they had connections with ship owners, head offices, bills of exchange, and huge international markets hungry for tropical goods. There was the JNT Apthorpe Company, which bought up sugar and seashells for shipment to Canton. There was the firm founded by a 20-year-old expat from Denmark, William Kirolf, whose descendants are still part of Philippine high society up to today. And then there was the great house of Russell and Sturgis, that outpost of Boston high rollers, which ended up becoming one of the Philippines' biggest companies in the 1800s. A big part of the firm's success was through the energetic drive of George Russell. An Ivy League graduate, the young man was dead set on becoming a lawyer, but later, he decided to make his fortunes as a trader abroad. He became a trusted agent of the China-based Perkins & Company, but later rented a house in Manila and in 1828 formed a company along with a man named Henry Sturgis. Greasing up the exchange of rice, sugar, abaca, and even ice, Russell and Sturgis became so successful that George Russell was able to retire in 1835, just seven years after founding the business. By 1831, George Russell had become good friends with Paul Proust de la Gironière, 
the brash Frenchman who owned the enormous plantation up Halahala Way. The plantation had already experienced many attacks from crocodiles, and in the years that Gironier had been living there, two people had already been eaten by the creatures. One, his wife's maid, and the other, a Chinese servant or employee. But one day, Gironier was out riding with five of his shepherds when one of them attempted to take a shortcut and swim across the river on his horse. Just then, an absolute monster of a croc surfaced from underneath the water. The Filipino jumped from his steed, and the crocodile went for the horse first. Jumping down on the panicked animal's saddle, the horse was lucky enough to break free from its gear and reach the other side of the river. For some reason, the shepherd was convinced he could take the croc head-on. Taking cover from behind a log in knee-deep water, the Indian drew his knife, and ignoring shouts from Gironier and his friends to get the hell out of there, he turned around to face the monster. It was the bravest, stupidest thing. The shepherd hit him in the head with his knife, a love tap really for the giant crocodile, and in a flash, the croc's jaws clamped over his thigh. For a long, excruciating minute, Gironier watched his worker being eaten alive. He wrote, We beheld my poor shepherd, his body erect above the surface of the water, his hands joined, his eyes turned to heaven, in the attitude of a man imploring divine mercy. It dragged him back again into the lake. The drama was over. The caiman's stomach was his tomb. The croc disappeared into the river. Gironier vowed to avenge the death of his shepherd. Two months followed. Another horse was eaten, and finally, Gironier decided it was time to make good on his promise of revenge. Accompanying him in his croc hunt were his guards and George Russell. And the priest? Maybe he was there to give last rites. Anyway, Gironier and his posse set up three sturdy nets around the river where the monster was hanging out so that it wouldn't swim out into the lake. Gironier, Russell, and a few others stayed on shore with guns while a group of Indias, armed with long lances, lashed three canoes together and began probing the riverbed with sticks. Soon, the crocodile surfaced. With a great cry, the Indias on the boats threw their spears while Gironier and the others fired their guns. The bullets bounced off the beast's scales while some lances buried themselves eight inches deep. The crocodile submerged and began swimming downstream, but finding the way blocked with nets, surfaced again with a violent shake that broke the spears embedded across its scaly back. Every time it broke the surface of the water, a fresh volley of gunfire and a fresh hail of lances greeted the animal. In a show of bravado, Gironier even ventured into the water's edge to lure the beast. When it approached him, jaw wide open, the Frenchman fired his double-barreled shotgun straight inside its gaping mouth. The point-blank shot didn't seem to face it. Instead, it only got angrier. And like the Hulk, when it got angrier, it seemingly got stronger. They hunted the beast for six hours. Their lances and their ammunition were almost depleted. Then, one brave Filipino seized an exceptionally long spear and from a canoe struck downward on the water as the crocodile was swimming below. His aim was true and the lance's deadly iron tip pierced the animal's nape. Immediately, another Indio hammered the butt end of the spear twice with a mace, bringing the weapon even deeper into the crocodile's spine. The beast continued swimming and disappeared. Soon, the wooden end of the spear floated upwards. 
had the crocodile gotten away? Hauling in the nets, Gironier and the rest of the hunters finally found the crocodile caught up in the net, its strength and life leaking away from countless wounds. They lassoed it up and began dragging the beast to the shore. It took 40 men to haul the gigantic corpse to land. George Russell, always good with the figures in the accounting books, was tasked to measure it. The beast measured 27 feet from nostril to tail. In contrast, the world-famous Lolong, captured in Palawan in 2011, measured only 20 feet long. 20 feet and 3 inches. Yan ang naging final artificial measurement sa dambuhalang buwayang si Lolong. Ayon na rin kay Dr. Adam Inside its stomach, they found the remains of an entire horse still being digested. Embedded around the mouth were flattened pieces of Gironier's buckshot. Unable to carry the animal whole back to his estate, the Frenchman had the crocodile beheaded and transported it via boat to his house. When it had been cleaned and prepared, the bones scrubbed until they were white, Gironier offered the skull to George Russell as a gift. When he returned to the United States, Russell donated the skull to the Boston Museum of Natural History, which eventually passed it on to Harvard. And there, Mugger rests, fearsome and immortal. Up to the present, clashes between Filipinos and saltwater crocodiles, among the biggest reptiles in the world, continue as humans increasingly encroach into their habitats. These conflicts can become so intense that locals would sometimes rally together to capture crocodiles, which is illegal under the 2001 Philippine Wildlife Act. In Palawan, Lolong's home, that final ecological frontier where friction between crocodiles and humans is a constant threat, authorities and conservation groups have set up a 10-year plan called the Conservation Strategy for Crocodiles. Aside from protecting the dwindling numbers of saltwater crocodiles and managing human resources, this plan also hopes to end the human-crocodile conflict. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Colonial Department. References used in this episode are written on the show notes, but I'd also like to express my thanks to my main sources. The English translation of 20 Years in the Philippines, written by Paul Proust de la Gironier, provided all the details of the crocodile hunt, while Benito Legarda's book After the Galleons, Foreign Trade, Economic Change, and Entrepreneurship in the 19th Century Philippines was my source for the foreign merchant houses and the life of George Russell. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.